2: Welcome to another episode of Ancient Office Hours by the Ozymandias Project. Trireme Transit is now boarding for all new and returning passengers. Now departing, present ponderings. Next stop is Ancient Office Hours at a library lost in the sands of time.
3: Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 24 of Ancient Office Hours. There are a couple of reasons today's episode is really special. Today is the 15th of September, which also happens to be my birthday, but that's not actually why I'm excited. This episode features our first expert on the Viking Age. Dr. Alan McNiven is a lecturer in the Scandinavian Studies department at the University of Edinburgh. I had the pleasure of taking his Scandinavian Civilization course back in 2015 during my semester abroad in Scotland. He is an expert on Viking settlements and place names in Scotland, and I was so excited when he not only remembered me from six years ago, but also when he agreed to appear on the podcast from Scotland. After Assassin's Creed Valhalla came out in fall 2020, I loved the game so much, which surprised even me that I decided to finally dive headfirst into the world of Vikings and Nordic mythology and culture, which is something that I had been avoiding for too long. This conversation could not have come at a better time, since I had so many questions about Norse culture. We discussed why people should choose to specialize in Viking studies, whether learning Old Norse is a requirement to study Vikings, about the importance of place names in Scotland and Ireland, and why Vikings have a bad reputation as raiding killers when everyone else did it too at that time. It felt so wonderful to revert to student mode, and listening to Alan talk was just like being back in one of his fascinating lectures. Also, his Edinburgh accent made it seem like I was in Scotland again, which brought back a ton of nostalgia. He's great. The convo's great. Please enjoy. I would like to thank you for joining me. For me, it's this morning for you. I suppose it's this afternoon. But it it was so wonderful that you were willing to come on the podcast because I have not been able to find anyone who studies anything related to the Vikings or Old Norse studies until now. And this is very much all about all the ancient studies, not just classics. So just jumping right in, how did you get so interested in Vikings and the study of Vikings?
4: Well, Lexi, that is a very good question and I'll have to really rack my brains to remember because it happened quite a long time ago. But I suppose it's one of those things that we are all exposed to as children. We all get the stories as kids of the, the Greek gods and the Roman gods and then the next thing is the Viking gods. Just a little bit more digging in the English-speaking world at least and certainly over here in Scotland, if you scrape below the surface of our own everyday cultural experiences, you can find traces of that we can look to the names of the days of the week, for example, and realize, oh my goodness, Thursday is not just the name of the uh, one, two, three, fourth day of the week. It is a name which points to the, the Norse god of thunder, Thor. Uh, Wednesday is Odin's day, and so on and so forth. So, I, as a relatively young person, started making connections like that. And uh, when I went to university uh, as a teenager, my focus wasn't Scandinavian studies originally, and it wasn't. Uh, Viking studies, but uh, as part of a, a general attempt to broaden my cultural horizons, i started to read about these topics, and the more I read, the more interested I got, and I guess it kind of spiraled from there.
3: That's often how it happens. I think most, most people are not like me, where I was in sixth grade and just learned about Egypt and Greece and said, that's what I'm going to do. So that sounds like a very much more normal way to find your interests. And within the study of Vikings, because it's so vast and there's a billion different cultures and time periods you could study, how did you choose to study Viking settlements in Scotland? Is that because you're Scottish and you decided I'd like to study my country and their impact on it?
4: I suppose so. The events which we collectively refer to as the Viking Age comprise a huge number of different things and we cover them big area. So if you have an interest in Viking studies, the sky's the limit. The world is your oyster. You could look to all different kinds of areas and all different kinds of topics. But yeah, you're quite right. For me, as uh, someone who grew up in Scotland, with an interest amongst other things in Scottish history, it made sense to combine them. And the more I looked into it, the more personally interesting I found that there were traces of Viking activity, not far from the place where I grew up, where I live So it, it was a kind of natural progression from there to learn more about it.
3: Yeah, and rewinding just a little bit. So obviously, Scotland is a very mythological place. It's steeped in a lot of folklore. And it has this sort of these community ties that I I really learned to love while I was studying there in a way that I don't quite see in the US where yes, we have an appreciation for cultural things like folklore passed down but I just noticed it, it's it hits a little different when you're from a place like Scotland or Ireland and so growing up were you someone who was told a lot of Scottish folklore? was this something that you had to sort of learn on your own or was it something that you and your friends talked about?
4: Yeah. <laughs> that is a, a really interesting question and the answer I think will be surprising and disappointing. yes. Scotland does have a very long heritage. And yes, if you care to look for it, you can make all kinds of connections between the landscape and mythology. But for most people living here, and certainly when I was growing up, those weren't really things that you looked at. For me, as a kid growing up, my mythology was Star Wars and Star Trek. And those are the things that we talked about and those are the things that we watched on TV. And just taking some time to investigate to some quiet time reading, opened up all kinds of doors that otherwise I personally might have missed. So you would be surprised. We are a country, as are many others, which is rich in its cultural heritage, but not everyone who lives here is necessarily connected with that. And despite what you know yourself from your own experiences, Scotland is a relatively big place with not so many people in it. That doesn't mean that folks are all spread out in the countryside. We don't all live in... As much as we would like to, we don't all live in romantic cottages on the hillside, most Scottish people are crowded together in in towns, and most of Scotland has no one in it at all. (laughs) So there's a a bit of a a disconnect, and one of my aims, uh, loosely stated I suppose, is to try and bridge the gap and try and reconnect people with that aspect of our past.
3: Yeah, I, I think that's definitely important work. I do know from my own experience, yes, living in Edinburgh is really interesting because when I did get to take a highland trip or go somewhere else, I don't know exactly what I was expecting, but there were some towns that were bigger than others. So going up and seeing, oh, I don't even remember now where I was. It's been six years, but I just remember being a little more shocked, I think, than, than what I was expecting in the best way possible. And In schools, did they have some kind of mythology class, or was it like a general history class, the sort of history class you would encounter here, which is just very generalized because we have to teach children?
4: Well, things have changed a little bit in schools since I went to one myself, but maybe not radically in terms of the focus of historical studies. Based on my own memories and what my kids have done more recently, uh, children will be presented with different aspects of the past. They will maybe do a project on the Romans, for example, or the Normans, and the Vikings is one of this uh, portfolio of topics that they usually get to discuss. Um, And that's certainly been the case in recent years because I've been to a few schools to give the kids talks on the Vikings. And if, if there is any local evidence for Viking activity, where I live now there isn't usually.
3: Also, kind of with that history, Scotland is such an incredibly diverse place historically, not only with the indigenous cultures that were there, but also Scotland has a bunch of Roman ruins. I mean, not to mention the Antonine Wall, Hadrian's Wall right there. You can go look at them. You can go visit them probably on field trips as well as just visiting on your own. And then in addition to the Roman influence, there's the native Pictish culture with then the the Viking influence eventually coming over. Do you notice there being like a greater influence? And basically, I think I'm trying to wrap this up. Which one do we learn about or see most? Is there an emphasis placed on learning about one of the three or kind of all of them?
4: Yes. Well, the kids don't actually, as far as I can see, learn a great deal about Indigenous cultures. Not in the forum and the format of historical studies anyway. There might be aspects to it later on. And certainly if you went to study history is a special topic in school, you might get more exposure to this, but Scotland's history is very complex, it's very difficult, there's lots of different identities to navigate and negotiate, and sometimes those are split over different periods, sometimes over different areas, there's lots of overlap, and what makes it difficult to discuss, especially if you're not directly involved in the study of these things, is trying to disconnect your preconceptions of modern terminology, modern boundaries, modern concepts from the realities of the past. Sometimes they sound the same, but in reality they're very different. So if we go back to um, the Roman era, for example, Scotland was the, the final frontier, of course, of the Roman Empire in the north. And uh, we know the Romans came here and spent a lot of time here and invested a lot of energy here. Uh, we have the, the wall built across the narrow part of southern Scotland, the Antonine War, a series of forts, which were built to control transit through the blends in the highlands, which stretch up to the, the northeast of the country. But as far as we know, no huge leaps were taken in Romanising the area, not to the extent that was apparent further south in uh, the, the more southerly parts of the British Union. So around about that time, the evidence we have for Scotland is very vague. There are Roman accounts which mention groups of people. We have the Mayatai for example, we have various different, let's call them tribes mentioned, but that's a, a problematic term. What in reality was a tribe? You know, is it a primitive group of peoples or is it just a group of peoples who find themselves out with the fold of the empire and represent something alien? And there are all kinds of discussions involved in that. But after the Roman era, things start to take slightly more visible form, and we see some of the smaller localised groups coalescing into the, uh, to use a controversial term, dark age demographic spread of Scotland. And we see the Picts up here, we see the Scots up here of we see the Britons of Strathclyde, we see the Angles of Northumbria. And what is now Scotland was very fractured, and we could put a name certainly to the overlords of different areas of it, but what's happening on the ground in any given locality is difficult to see without spot evidence. And there isn't a huge amount of that. But it's it's into this environment, this fractured cultural and political environment that the Vikings arrived. And what makes it even more complicated still is that after the Viking Age, after going a Viking stopped being a thing, culture didn't stop, it didn't crystallize, it continues as it always does to evolve and to move on. And by the later middle ages, the group, or at least the culture which had risen to dominance in Scotland, was uh, that of the Gals from the West. So the Scottish Gaelic language became then the lingua franca of most of what is now Scotland. And this, if you can imagine a stratigraphy of this, this is like the icing on top of a very deep and layered cake. So if we go back before modern times, if we go back before the Industrial Revolution, before the cities really started to boom, when more people lived in the countryside, Especially to the north of the, the River Clyde and the River Forth, huge areas were Gaelic speaking. And this is the, the, the most recent cultural heritage of most of Scotland. But it's, it's really not one that we hear a huge amount about, to be honest with you, which is surprising, something which should probably change, I would argue.
3: Yeah, I would love to hear more. I I know I personally would certainly sit through any lecture on the history of Scotland because I find it so incredibly fascinating. So I hope that more people would, would like to do that as well. And in terms of ease of study, I know that the system in the UK is very different from the one here in the States. When choosing a program of study, was it fairly easy for you because they already had a program and you just said, okay, yep this is what I'm doing because this is where my interests are and it's it was quite easy or was it sort of hidden and did you have to go searching for the type of program that you wanted that had your interests because here it's so hard to find anything I didn't even know a classics department existed I did I had n- I'd never heard the term. And so by the time I got to uni, I went into anthropology because that was the biggest thing that even sounded close. And then it was only through talking with the advisor there that she said, oh, did you know we have a classics department? And I said, no, what's that? And so then that's how I found my major.
4: Yeah, well, you're quite right. The system here is rather different to that in the States today. <laughs> when I was taking my first steps into academia, it was very different here to the way it says now. And I'm going to say something that might shock you and your listeners. Regardless of how complicated things are in the modern world, you at least have tools which can help you to negotiate that. You have ways of reaching out and asking questions and communicating, which often gets very direct and and quick responses. You have the internet. And when I was growing up, that wasn't a thing. And I don't think I can stress how different things were. We didn't have mobile telephones. We didn't have um, social media we had to rely on public libraries and catalogues and if you were lucky you found a name you could phone someone or send a letter but people were very helpful in the past as they still are now but things took a lot longer it was more difficult to find the information so when i was growing up i wasn't really sure what i wanted to study initially and one of one of the big differences between scottish and u.s education is that whereas in the states some of the professions tend to be closed to all except graduate candidates. So, for example, if you want to be a lawyer in the States, you wait till you've taken your first degree and then you go to grad school and learn lawyering. But it doesn't work like that here. You. you. would do law as an undergraduate degree. So uh, my first forays into higher education were as a law student, which was interesting, but not necessarily very practical. It was more the theoretical side of things. And as much as I appreciated that, I found it didn't quite scratch the itch which I developed. And so I, I spent a lot of time broadening my horizons outside my studies. I, I found the things I was interested in and uh, learned more about those. And the more I did that, the more I realised maybe I should move on to study something else. And then I discovered ultimately that you could study these things. You could take a university degree in Scandinavian studies and learn Scandinavian languages and learn more about Scandinavian culture. And so eventually I finished my my legal training and I moved over to them. And uh, I've stayed there ever since, and it's been a very long time.
3: Okay, so if you're if you came into it late, this is this is really good because I know a lot of people who say things like, "Oh, I'd like to go into this, or I'd like to study this," but I fear it's too late for me because I've already chosen this path, and I, I think it would take too long and it would be too hard. In terms of requirements for Scandinavian studies, I don't know if it's anything like classics, but for classics, usually you are required to learn two ancient languages in addition to the two modern languages. So when you go to uni your first year they say all right we're going to slap you in some classes would you like to take greek or latin first and then would you like to take your french and your german at the same time and you say oh my goodness how am i going to survive through all these language courses and am i really going to sit through multiple semesters of these just so i can get this degree and for scandinavian studies obviously there is the language component but is it as central to being able to earn the degree as it would be for something like classics
4: Uh, Yes, it is. It is the spine of the degree, in fact, Lexi. Although at the same time, it perhaps works in a slightly different way to the system we are familiar with. So the main difference being, of course, that ancient Greek and ancient Latin are now dead languages that nobody speaks. Very useful, of course, if you want to read texts, engage with thinking from that period. But otherwise, you can't really go to a, a bar or at the church and have a chat with someone about things. So if you were to embark on a degree in Scandinavian studies at my university, the University of Edinburgh, your main subject from day one would be a Scandinavian language. And those, for the avoidance of doubt, are the the three mainland Scandinavian languages, Danish, Norwegian and Swedish. And they are distinct languages. They're supported, each of them, by a series of normalized rules and standards and national bodies and what have you. They're similar enough that you can't realistically start to learn two at the same time because you might get confused and start to mix them up. That's a trick, that's a technique that we um, gradually ease students into later in their studies. But to begin with, you will focus on one of the languages. Uh, That's the main part of your study. You will learn it. Because these languages are not taught in schools in Scotland, or in the UK I don't think, not in very many other places outside Scandinavia at all in fact, our teaching is what we call ab initio. So at the beginners level it is for absolute beginners, You do not have to have pre-existing knowledge in a Scandinavian language because our courses are designed to take you by the hand, metaphorically speaking, and lead you gradually along a path of personal improvement. So yes, you start by learning a language but uh, round about this fine You will add uh, a predefined number of credits in related courses. So you might, as you did yourself, take a course in Scandinavian Civilization. We have several of those. We have other courses in Literature. We have courses which focus on the, the language history of the Scandinavian languages and many more beside. And one of the unique selling points of the Scottish education system or the Scottish higher education system is, unlike other countries, Maybe not so much as the States, but certainly compared to England. When you embark on a named degree programme in the humanities, you will have the core subjects, which you have to do. But for at least the first year, and usually also the second year, there is some space in your curriculum to take well, what we call outside subjects. So a student who wanted to study Danish, for example, and who was taking another course in Scandinavian civilization might choose to to fill out their palette by taking an option in Classics. Or maybe they could learn some ancient Greek if they wanted to, and that could continue maybe for two years. But then the final two years of the degree, because our degrees last for four years, are at the honours level. And it's at that point that students focus on their core subjects. So in saner times, they would spend a year in Scandinavia, and they would learn about life there and how things work. They would polish their language, increase their register, learn how to add nuance to their conversation, become more articulate and so on. But they would also pick specialist topics for study, specialist honours options. And it's at that stage where you can really start to needle down and focus on the things that interest you. So if you had been interested in the things that we have done about the Vikings before, your final honours year would be your chance to take an option. Viking studies and spend even more time looking at that specifically
3: okay yeah I I really like that difference actually and obviously when you learn modern languages it's a lot easier because you can not only go to the country and pick things up and learn from native speakers but say a student came and said all right I want to be here and I want to study depending on the time period Roman Scotland or the very first Vikings that came to Scotland is there a degree of Okay, then you need to take Old Norse language, something that is no longer in use, or should you be learning Latin because you want to study Roman artifacts in Scotland? So is there any overlap with taking the ancient languages, depending on what time period?
4: Yeah, it depends really on what your aspirations are. Our degree structures are very broad, very inclusive, but we also have a lot of things. So if you were really interested in the Romans in Scotland, for example, Then probably your primary home should be in archaeology. And uh, you might then study the archaeology of Scotland, a big component of which is the the Roman period. There's other stuff too, which is equally interesting. You might later on be able to take more specialist modules. We usually have modules in either archaeological history on the, the, the early period of Scottish history and associated archaeology. If you just wanted to do a bit of that, but your main interest was in modern Norwegian history, you could take one of your outside options, for example, in classics in first or second year, you could do a bit of archeology span perhaps, but then as your skills in Norwegian language developed, not only would you get better at speaking Norwegian, but you would be able to access source materials that other students would not. So by the time you got to fourth year, your language skills hopefully would have evolved to the stage where you could read academic articles in Norwegian, which is another reason why it makes sense to leave the in-depth studies to the final stages because you would then be able to see things from a different perspective.
3: And for those who may be sitting here thinking, I want to study the Vikings, just the Vikings because I love them and I don't want to study some of the more contemporary stuff. I think there's this perception, at least here in the US, that to exclusively study the Vikings, you absolutely need to go and learn Old Norse. There's a lot of years there, and I'm sure there's a couple different forms of Old Norse. So for the regular person who said, okay, I wanna go study the earliest Vikings, what type of Old Norse do I need? And is it integral to the program of study?
4: It depends is the answer. There are other universities which will uh, let you focus exclusively on these kinds of things. uh, In which case, yes, you will start with Old Norse from the beginning. And if that's what you really want to do, if you're bed that, then that's what you should do. What we often find is that there are many young people, myself included, who are absolutely sure what they want to do from the very beginning. And so a degree of flexibility is often a good idea. And you can dabble and you can certainly develop key skills during your undergraduate programme. But if there's something a bit more obscure that really grabs your interest, then, well, you learn something about it, hopefully, as an undergraduate. That's something you could really take forward then in graduate school, on a master's programme, for example, or doing a PhD. So there, there are ways of shoring up your skill base, and there are ways of polishing your understanding of a topic or a, a historical period, which don't necessarily involve super-focused study on a very discreet topic from the very start, but those options are also there.
3: So it's very much, if you want to go do this, go ahead and do it. But you should also be cognizant of there are other options and you may find a different interest that you may want to incorporate.
4: Yeah, I I wouldn't want to uh, shove anyone in one direction or other. And I'm quite sure there are plenty of young people who know exactly what they want to do. But in my personal experience, that's not the case. It wasn't for me. I'm sure it's the same for a lot of people. And you might think that you're really interested in the topic and that might be accurate. You might then go ahead and work with that, but you might find if you broaden your horizons a little bit and start looking at other things, that those are actually even more interesting to you. So depending on what kind of person you are, I think should impact on what kind of choice you make, And that, that's not a value judgment in any way, I think it's a practicality. So if you're absolutely certain, go with that. If you're not quite so certain, give yourself a bit of scope to develop
3: And I think that's how it should be. Turning a little to your own research, though, I believe that you specialise in Viking settlements?
4: Well, I have been uh, researching and writing for a few years on settlement history, let's call it that. So where Scandinavians came to in Scotland, what happened when they arrived, and how those immigrants settled down put down roots and contributed to history (laughs) in a broad sense afterwards.
3: So it must give you a really unique perspective, though, being able to study this ancient migration, studying settlements and immigrants to what we see today with we're still dealing with a lot of the same issues just in a very different manner right we don't arrive via boat with all of our stuff kind of right there
4: if you're coming to the UK it's because it's an island.
3: oh that's true that's true you can still you can still do it that way but are there any great similarities between what you study that help you sort of understand what's going on today with migration issues and do you feel that Your experience studying this, but in the past, offers you a unique perspective and window into understanding the the future, the the present.
4: Well, that is, that's a very interesting question. (laughs) to to think very carefully about that. I reckon when you are faced with the ancient past, uh, certainly in this part of the world in Scotland, one of the challenges, one of the attractions, is not so much what you can see with certainty, It's not so much what we know, it's what we don't know. Because the sources for anything going back even just a few hundred years tend to be relatively limited. Certainly when you get back to the the Viking Age, uh, the amount of written evidence for anything or for any culture drops to almost negligible levels. And it, it really doesn't provide us with the detail or the volume of stuff that we would need to conduct any kind of sensible ethnographic survey or or study. So basically what we're looking at when it comes to settlement, when it comes to social behaviours, is a process of jigsaw identification. We can only work with what we have. We cannot make the, the basic blunder of assuming that absence of evidence is the same as evidence of absence. Just because in Scotland you don't have a book which tells you the Vikings give to life on so you can kill them doesn't mean it didn't happen because it, depending on where we're talking about geographically, it could have. So when you are considering those types of evidence, it's tempting when you begin to think that because things happened a long time ago, they must have happened in strange and simple ways, that people must have been different. But I think the more you look at it, and the more you look at the meagre but available written sources, the more you realise that some things probably haven't changed very much. Now, in terms of ordinary people and what we do, nowadays, uh, there's all kinds of reasons for migration. We have labour migration, of course. People want to find a better job and make a better life themselves. We also, thanks to unrest in various parts of the world, have people fleeing from fear for their lives. So and actually families, we have refugees moving about in large numbers. And that's been an increasing problem in Europe. Certainly, well, until about five years ago, it was constantly going up. I think figures have stabilised a bit since then. But uh, the key in both of these movements seems to be some kind of agency, by which I mean that to an extent, people can choose what they want to do and where they want to go. Even if someone is leaving their homeland as a refugee, as horrible as that situation is, and it's not what they would have chosen to do, at least they've been able to choose to leave and make it work. And they've been able to choose to go somewhere else and hopefully stay there or move on somewhere afterwards. When you go back in time, I don't think agency played such a big part in how people lived their lives. So most people, if you go back a thousand years, lived very rural lives. Almost everyone in Scotland lived and worked on a farm of one size or another, very few towns of any description. But most people would have been fixed to the land and basically would have done what they were told. The only people with real agency would have been the people who owned the land, so the kings and the lords. And the same is also true for Scandinavia. And when you read about these people, and there's, like I said, there isn't so much to read about them, and it's very limited in what it actually says. My experience of modern life, I think, is guiding me into reading these accounts a bit like how you might read a newspaper report. And when we read of newspaper, newspaper reports these days about the, the main players, the political actors, yes, you have words which describe what they've done and perhaps suggest motives. You can never take it at face value. Things are usually partisan, sometimes quite depressingly so. And to get the real picture, we have to read between the lines as well as on top of them. And I would suggest that exactly the same thing applies to our study of the more distant past. Because the accounts are of the big players, they're not about Joe Bloggs who um, turns the soil on a farm. They're about the king who gathers the rent for the farm. Any accounts of them have to be read as somehow politically motivated. Very rarely can you imagine these are objective or don't have some kind of baggage that needs to be interpreted. So that, in a sad way, is the comparison I would make between the current situation and the previous one. It's, it's not the plight of the ordinary people per se. It's how the movements are rationalized and how the motivations of the major players are described and justified and problematized.
3: And I think that that's very true. I often joke it's very hard to find a completely unbiased source today because even the people writing who try to stay very un biased are going to have something that it, it'll still show up in the written word. So It's the same in classics as well when looking at the ancient source material and we say, okay, let's construct what is the, the daily life of a, a Roman woman look like. Well, that's very difficult because Roman women aren't writing these things. So uh, what you get is this sort of caricature of what a Roman male thinks a, Ro- a Roman woman does.
4: Precisely. It's, uh, it is clothed in cliches and assumptions and literary tropes and all different kinds of of confusing and clouding issues, which you have to then unpeel and get to the bottom of. Coming back to the settlement thing, the very concept of Viking settlement in Scotland, I think raises some questions beyond this. And before you look at any of the evidence, or at the same time, certainly, you have to be asking, well, okay, settlement applies; people are, are moving in. So where are we coming from? You could ask. And maybe we could we could use some material evidence from. Settlement the areas. There might be some surviving pieces of jewelry or tools or styles of building which point to cultural origins in a specific part of, for example, That might be a useful and guide. But then you'd ask, okay, so they're coming from here, but how were they able to come here? First of all, how did they get permission from their lord to leave? Um, lord, of course, not the Scandinavian one. You get the drift. And and if we did get, if we were able to leave, if we had the agency and they have the social resources to leave. How physically did they then get here? Because in the year 900 or 10 hundred, it wasn't simply a case of flipping out your mobile telephone and swiping yourself five tickets on the, the next bargain flight from, I don't know, Bergen to Lewis, you need to find the ship. So who owns the ship is probably going to be someone who's really important. Why would they let you own it? We're not talking about a monetary economy. You know, you can't usually buy things with cash money. Aspects of exchange have social implications. So perhaps not everyone is welcome to get on a ship. Perhaps not everyone will be taken one place to another. And then when they get there, how do we find somewhere to live? Because anthropologically speaking, every part of this new environment is owned by the people who live there. Now that doesn't mean that every part of the landscape has a house on it, but everything, every part of apparent wilderness has an owner. Maybe it is a forest where the wood is a valuable and farmed resource. It's used for building, maybe building ships, maybe building houses. Maybe some of it is set aside for fuel. You can't just go and cut down trees because you would then be in trouble. You would have violated someone's rights and retribution would be solved. Maybe there is what looks like an empty plot of grassland with nothing nearby, but perhaps this is the summer pasture for the neighbour's sheep. So how do you get there? And also something else which I don't think we should underestimate is how do you negotiate in these less enlightened times cultural differences? So we're not dealing with an interconnected world where you can, once again, flip out your mobile or your tablet or power up your um, your PC and you can watch YouTube videos about life in the Isle of Mull or the Isle of Skye or whatever. You can't get yourself a handy babble course in how to speak Old Irish or whichever language variety they were speaking at the time. No, absolutely not. In fact, you will never have heard the language they spoke before. Culturally, they'd be very different. You might be, I hesitate to use the word pagan because it has very fixed connotations, but maybe better to say they might be Christians and you might not be a Christian. So in reality, for us nowadays, uh, certainly within the world of academia, would we like to think of ourselves as inclusive and tolerant? That's such a non-issue. It's barely worth thinking of us. So the difference of what? That's part of life's rich tapestry. In fact, not only so what, but I'd you like to hear some more about it. Can you please tell me? Not the case at all. Fundamental to people's perceptions of themselves and to others, and sadly, in tougher times, in more primitive times, these differences would have been things which defined individuals against the outside world and potentially also demonised them. So if someone spoke a language you didn't understand, your first thoughts might not be, ah, you're my brother, if only I could understand you. It might be, oh, goodness, you're an alien, you're a monster, I cannot possibly speak to you, you're evil. So it makes justifying violence a lot easier. So there's a lot of issues there, and they feed into the interpretation of the very limited spread of evidence that survives for this movement. In the context of the, the West of Scotland, which is the area I've been looking at, there is a growing body of archeological material. There have been some, uh, some big excavations, for example, on the island of the south newest, fantastic site, Bonaish, and nearby, which has revealed aspects of typically Scandinavian settlement from the later part of the Viking Age, and going back a bit before that as well. There are other areas further north which are producing lots of evidence. But further south you go, the lower the amount of material which has been found gets. And that's not necessarily because it isn't there, it's just because people haven't been looking for it, because it's an expensive business, and it's an investment which isn't guaranteed a return. So, with that being the case, you would need to look for other bits of evidence, and there are different things, for example. In a broad sense, you could look at the Scandinavian component of the Scottish Gaelic language. In more recent times, Gaelic and the Scandinavian languages are substantially different, belong to different branches of the Indo-European family tree of languages, but there are loanwords from Old Norse, the modern Scottish Gaelic which points to some degree of linguistic interference, so contact. Also, more usefully, we can look at things such as historically attested place names, the names given to uh, farms, hills, sometimes rivers, headlands, that kind of thing. Although in recent years these things tend to be reconstructed in their pure Gallic forms, if you look at the the oldest attested forms, so going back not all the way to the Viking Age, if you're lucky there might be some rental documents from the late 15th or early 16th century, where you can see that these names they look a bit strange. They could be Gallic, but they don't look quite right. And the reason is because they have been passed down to a Gaelic language speaking violin, but ultimately they come from a different language, which is the language of the Vikings, Or Norse. I studied in some depth the settlement history of the Hebridean island of Isla. Uh, I looked at uh, old rentals and charters and sources of information for the, uh, the farm names in particular on our island. It's not a very big island, and if your listeners are familiar with it at all, I imagine it's because of its whiskey production. It's a very famous centre for the production of, of single malts. Isla malts are, are famous. They've got a very usually repeaty quality. For some, that's an acquired taste. For others, it is the nectar. They want to be saved and enjoyed. But to give you an example, there is the still is a farm, in fact, a couple of agricultural settlements and other houses, in a place called Glenegedil. Just looking at that name, the Glen bit at the start signals Gallic. Because Glen is a Gaelic word. It means valley. Egedil. You're thinking that the like valley of Egadil, what's that? And you could spend ages messing about with Gaelic dictionaries, talking to Gaelic speakers because maybe it's not really a word, maybe it's a concept, and uh, maybe it plays on cultural illusion of some kind. But, but no, the reason why you can't find it there is because it's not Gaelic, it's Old Norse. And Egadil, ultimately, to give it some modern Icelandic translation or nearly enough, hopefully, is Egadil, which means oak. Valley, and if you go there, interestingly, uh, the landscape could have changed quite a bit in the past thousand years, but even today, there are oak trees in that valley. And if that proves anything, it is simply that the environment there is suitable to sustain oak trees. So, it's a reasonable interpretation if this was going to be a Viking name, that's what they might have called it because that might have been its, its most conspicuous feature. Well, not recently, but in decades gone by, this kind of combined name might have been described as hybrid. And it might have been used to point to a hybrid Gallic north society, where possibly you have uh, the native community of Gaelic speakers welcoming in settlers from Norway, you know, friendly handshake on the beach. How are you doing? What's your name, Sven? My name is Danish. Welcome. You can have that farm over there, no one's in it. Very, very likely nice to happen. In linguistic terms, those are not hybrid names at all. In linguistic terms, the Glen bit at the start is what we would call an ep exegetic on a massive unit. That's a mouthful. But basically, it's an element which was added much later, long after the last bit was created. And the thing about names is, place names, they, they serve a function. They help to identify places or people. But they don't, in order to function, don't need to have a clearly discernible literary meaning. So my name is Alan what that means effectively is me, it, it points to the sum total of foibles and faults which together make up the person that you can see others can, in front of you, uh, but it has a meaning originally, it means the handsome one or something similar as you can see clearly. But you didn't need to know that, you didn't need to. You just need to know that I uh, means me. And the same thing is true for the names of places. So they can have clear lexical meaning, so Oakdale, Ekadala. That's clear enough. But all it has to mean is that place over there. So, ultimately, if you have a situation where the language of the settled population of the community is, say, Old Norse, and between them, they point to places and give them names in their own language, as long as they are able to pass these traditions down to the the people who follow on from them, their descendants, incomers, the names will survive but they don't have to understand what those names mean. And ultimately, we could see language shifting across Scotland in the Middle Ages. I mentioned earlier this mosaic of related but different cultures being subsumed eventually by Scottish Gaelic, and by now, most of Scotland speaks modern English. Instead, Gaelic has been reduced to not so many speakers. Hopefully, it's it's increasing, but the point is, things have changed. So if you could imagine these Viking communities who have settled, Gradually, because of the changing demands of political interaction, maybe new overlords, maybe new terms and conditions for renting their farms, maybe they start to learn Scottish Gaelic themselves. Then people come in and they ask, what's that farm called? Glen Ekeville, what does that mean? Oh yeah, it's a valley, so we're going to call it Glen Ekeville, so it's changed. Yeah, those are the kinds of issues that we're dealing with, complex issues, ones that require a lot of thought.
3: Yeah, I I love the window into place names because I very much am always curious about how did something get its name. And especially in a foreign country, when traveling all around Scotland, when traveling around Ireland, when I spent a summer there studying as well, and they had all these Gaelic names associated with them, all I remember is thinking, oh, I love this and I want to be able to pronounce this correctly. I have no idea what this means, but that's not really the point. I just I want to be able to say it and know what I'm talking about and have other people know what I'm talking about. And it got me thinking a little bit back to your point of how did people come to settlements? How did people get here? I think we associate Vikings. I don't know why, but we all assume maybe it's because of popular TV shows, but everyone kind of assumes, oh, if you're a Viking, you're going to have a long ship and you're going to be able to just sail around in your ship and land places and raid. And I think it's interesting because everyone likes to talk about Viking raids as the most quote unquote interesting part of the Vikings, which... It's certainly something unique, which you don't see or study really in classics. I don't, I mean, sure, people went around and conquered, but you don't have anything like Viking raids in ancient Greece. That's just not done. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but have you seen or heard anything about the new Assassin's Creed Viking game, Valhalla?
4: I've seen a YouTube video, which my kids showed me, but that's about it. I haven't played it. I'm sorry to say
3: Okay, so without sort of spoiling it in case you ever do decide to play it, which I highly encourage because as someone who loves Vikings and settlements, I will say one of the new features that they added in this game for the very first time that I was very excited about when I saw that you specialize in settlements was normally you kind of land and there's a city and it's your home base and that's just where you are in the game, but in this game... They brought the Viking settlement feature. So when your character comes to England to settle, you build up your settlement. And so in the game, they have this hodgepodge of ways to get people. And I don't know if it's quite accurate, but in the game, as your character goes around England conquering territories, making alliances, there were some people who would organically migrate to the settlement and then you would sort of go around and, and, and have a character say, oh, can we join your settlement because we're not threatened by you, we like your culture, we're nice to you, can you just accept us, can we settle here? And in the game, at least, your character says, sure, your character is not the Lord King. I mean, in the game, we call them Jarls. So, but your, your character isn't the Jarl, but still somehow has the power to say, you're welcome to come stay at our settlement. In real life, how accurate is that? Would you find random Saxons who would be okay with Vikings sort of landing there in Mercia and, and then inviting them to stay with you or is that just a complete fabrication for the game?
4: I suppose as an abstraction it could kind of work. There isn't for the AI I'm studying a whole amount of evidence to see uh, whether it is entirely accurate or not but um, there are ways of looking at this you know as, as a game dynamic it works and I'm sure it's fun and I'm sure that helps to move things on but in terms of what people would actually have done, I suspect uh, probably not so close to the lived experience of most people. And although, like I said, we don't have detailed accounts of the fores and against, there are other bits of evidence that help us build up a picture. So when it comes to the islands to the west of Scotland, when it comes to Ireland, which are a very similar culture, so Christian, speakers of Old Irish originally, which developed in different ways in the different areas, there was a a great emphasis placed on social status. And social status was evaluated in one main way, and that was land ownership. There were other aspects to it. Property ownership was also important. In the the idealised tracts on status, ownership of herds of cows was very important in in every island, but also land ownership. And uh, depending on how much property, how much land you owned, you would be higher or lower down the social scale. Now, if you owned land and you had it taken away from you, or in most cases, if you sold it or gave it away, then you were also giving away part of your social status. So there was a real disincentive, according to the idealized tracks to do this. You wouldn't do it. You wouldn't be looking to play the property market like people might do in more recent times. There may be an exception to this, of course. If uh, if a ruler had been important enough and had lands enough to spare, it may have been politically expedient to offer some of that to an incomer. But usually there would have to be a very clear, 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 call. perhaps this is a person who has strong connections, who can contribute in a big way to the military levy, or who can generate extra tax income, that kind of thing. So it seems unlikely, or certainly in my area of study, Scandinavians would have been able to come across in dribs and drabs and gradually acquire bits of land. To me, that's not a realistic scenario. For that to happen at all, there would need to be a number of other things. For example, even if you had the agency to move, and most people would not, you are unlikely, following basic principles of human nature, to move to an area where the second after you built a house, it's going to be attacked and robbed and burned to the ground by some less than pleased neighbours who previously owned the the land upon which you built it. So you either need to move into an area that's very secure, which by extrapolation mean taking out the local threats before you did so, or you would need to be powerful enough in numbers and in strength to make sure that you were not open and vulnerable to that kind of attack. And in some areas that would have been difficult to achieve. if you look at Scandinavian settlement in Anglo-Saxon England, for example, there are large contiguous areas of land there, and so different strategies for settlement might have been brought into play. But for the, the Scottish islands, and you would need to look at a map to get the gist of this, but for the, the fractured archipelagic seascapes around the north and west of Scotland, it would have been very easy for seafaring warriors with fleets of ships to isolate Islands or groups of islands, and if they wanted to, to clear everyone off them, but I'm not saying that definitely happened, uh, the jury is still out on that, but it would have been possible for them in any case, if they came in large numbers, to down a presence, to take control, but not necessarily in a pleasant way, and not in a way that worked out well for the established culture. And one, one way to, uh, to really pry open the lid of what's happening is to look at the nature of the needs na- so of places, And we have loads of place names in the islands in the north and west of Scotland which are built on Scandinavian foundations. It's very difficult to identify very many place names at all which predate the Scandinavian arrival, which show the continuity of native traditions. There is an apparent disjuncture and we have to ask how has this happened? How is it that a culture which has been there and evolved in situ for hundreds, thousands of years all of a sudden is replaced by something completely different. Is it the result of peaceful integration and collaboration and hybridity, or is it possibly the result of something less than pleasant? Of, well, to use a more modern term, some form of ethnic cleansing, which could mean killing lots of people, but it could also mean just um, subjugating local culture to the extent that it no longer is remembered, but it's forgotten. That's
3: another kind of, of cleansing, which is a very pleasant. Mm. Yeah, it's fun to see, well, certainly in real life, but it is fun to see in the game what, if anything, transferred over that was anything close to realistic cultural practices, like what would actually be permissible. Because I think, what was it? One of the main characters in the game is a, a female Viking warrior. I don't study Vikings, so I think when I think of this romanticized version of Vikings and raiding and settlements, I think of female warriors as, oh, okay, so they're like shield maidens. They must be this unique entity as someone who does study this a lot more than I do. Is that like factually correct? Would it have been possible for there to be a lot of strong female warriors or, I mean, certainly it's more plausible for there to be female warriors in the ninth century AD than something like ancient Greece, for sure. But just to see this main character run around and do all the things a male Jarl would, is that really a thing?
4: Well, possibly, but more likely, not so much. It's a, it's a very attractive image, very exciting image. And if we go back to the Viking Age, because we are dealing with a time point which is on the edge of the known, on the edge of the knowable, it is very tempting to present certain scenarios on that stage, and they work very well in terms of popular entertainment, and if they, uh, if they inspire young ladies and get them more confidence to do what they want to do, it's all the better, absolutely fine. In terms of historical realities, however, the issue is slightly more complicated. There has been, well, a growing debate recently in Scandinavian archaeological circles about the the reality of this concept of the shield maiden. It's something that we, we read about in, uh, in literary sources, mainly from medieval Iceland, later medieval Iceland, the Christian part of medieval Iceland's history. And we also read about it in sources from Denmark, but once again, uh, in the Christian part of the Middle Ages. So they have this idea of the shield maiden, the warrior woman. It's not encountered kind particularly of particular loft, that has to be said, uh, you might be, I suppose, allowed to imagine that possibly this is something that happened, but maybe not very often. There has been a revaluation of some Viking Age warrior graves. A very famous one is from the island of Bjrka, uh, the second of Birka, which is in central Sweden. And I can tell you, putting this down actually. There's a grave whose code number is BG581. So that's the information to Google which was for many years thought to be the grave of a slightly built male warrior, but recent reappraisal of the skeletal remains have revealed that the skeleton in that grave is extremely likely to be female. I think it's been DNA tested now, in fact, and that's been confirmed. So that's an interesting juxtaposition. We have a female skeleton in a grave which is furnished for a male warrior with armour and weaponry. And the obvious, easy conclusion to draw is that this skeleton was the owner of this equipment in their life. But I'm sorry to say that it's a bit of a leap. We'd have to make assumptions to draw that conclusion. Maybe they did belong to her, maybe they didn't. Maybe they've been put there because this is a reflection of what she did in life. Maybe they've been put there for a different reason. Possibly there was also another body in the grave which has since gone missing because we are separated from the point of deposition now by a thousand years. So all those things are possible. But I guess if we give it the broadest possible acceptance, if we say that, yes, this is the grave of a female warrior, then I think we would also have to accept that it is phenomenally unusual. And what I would offer is, while there are references, poetic references, and mythological references to shield maidens in the the Northern world, Perhaps those are being highlighted simply because they are so out of the ordinary. It is something which is special because it is very far removed from the norm. So it's not out with the bounds of possibility that they were being the warriors, but it is extremely unlikely, on the basis of the evidence we have, that they ever existed in substantial numbers. And even so, even if they were, what we can't then go on to extrapolate is any woman. Could be a warrior. We can't even say that any man can become a warrior because in those days your social status and the things that you were allowed to do were limited basically to what your parents have been allowed to do. So for most people if your parents have been agricultural labourers that's what you would be and there would be no chance of being a warrior because it's a serious business. You needed expensive equipment to not be killed straight away. You would presumably need extensive training. You would need to be well-funded and well-resourced. Yes, you could go and bother the warriors on the next farm and steal the sheep. However, you could not build an enormous longship and sail it across the North Sea and raid anyone, unless you already had quite a large amount of resources and skills to back it up. So, in a very long-winded way, the idea is exciting and it's interesting, and there may be some elements of historical memory there, but it probably
3: wasn't particularly common. Okay. And here I was, oh, this is so progressive. I mean, it's all in the name of entertainment. So that kind of breaks down all the things and especially when over 50% of, I'm sure their target audience in gaming are young women. They absolutely want, to get people in so it is just fun to see even if it isn't the most historically accurate but like most entertainment they're made for entertainment not historical accuracy or else you might as well just make a documentary right. and, and just sort of to take this off of the fun little discussion about modern pop culture so here in the u.s a lot of people love vikings and we have all these viking shows we have the last kingdom we have the show called vikings and other films and shows filmed in the viking age But as many as we have, I still tend to personally see, and maybe this is just because I'm looking harder for it, we still seem to be interested in making things about very long-dead civilizations like uh, ancient Rome and Greece and Egypt. Has there been a film, a game, a book, something that does a really good job that you've found of describing or portraying the Viking Age particularly well, and accurately, that you've found?
4: Oh, now that is a tricky one. The thing about Viking-based entertainment is it usually can be traced back in one way or another to literature produced in Iceland in the late Middle Ages. So you may have heard of the Icelandic sagas. These are stories that are different kinds of sagas, which are different focal points, but often they will will cover what appear to be accounts of viking activity and they do so in a way which is very naturalistic and it has a feeling of being an objective historical account and many people over the centuries have been taken by these and they've assumed that they must be dealing with the crystallized written versions of ancient stories passed down through word of mouth but the truth is that the Icelandic sagas were not written by vikings they were not written in the viking age they were stories which were composed by consummate and conscious authors, Christian authors, hundreds of years after the fact. These were people who were devout Christians, who lived in a society which was Christian and had been Christian for many, many generations. Uh, They did not have access to the internet or Wikipedia. They did not have the details of the everyday life of their ancestors at their fingertips. And it seems likely that when they described events of the Viking Age, some of it, Maybe preserving aspects of historical reality. So the names of the characters may be genuine, the broad events they participated in, could represent historical events, but the detail, who said what to whom, who stuck which sort of where what happened next? It all seems to be made up. And made up for all kinds of reasons, for entertainment, just like we have today, or to perhaps foreground other contemporary issues, perhaps to look at aspects of life in the 13th century, but projected back onto the imagined realities of the 9th century, 10th century, and so on. So most of our sources come back from these early, almost proto-romantic works in a sense, but the, the real point of departure for the modern entertainment industry are the various different takes on this material, by the Romantic movement in the 18th and early 19th century, the rediscovery of the Old North by Romantic authors. And you can see why they would have been interested in the Vikings, because they offer something which is raw, something which on face value is both savage and noble, something which forms a stark contrast to their own experience of the world in the them. So the world which is industrialising, which is constrained by the built environment, which uh, lays out rigid lines of personal development for individuals of whichever social class, compare and contrast with potentially adventurous, brave, free-footed, free-booting, Viking warriors going where they like, taking what we want. It's a very, very attractive image. And it's one which has set down very, very deep roots in the public conscious. The cliches are almost unshakable. They're very difficult to get away from. You mentioned earlier, Lexi, this idea of of Viking raids. And this is something that any, anything, any book, film, game, academic study, which talks about Vikings, comes back to, often because it's central to the evidence we have. But there's an enduring perception that Vikings, they must have been primitive barbarians, whose only contribution to the world was sacking places of divine beauty, churches, monasteries, abbeys, defiling their sanctuaries, stealing their treasure, and then investing it and having a good time somewhere else. And there may have been an element to that, absolutely. But if we look at things within the context of the day, what was actually happening soon starts to take on a slightly different form. To begin with, when we read about let's call them raids in historical sources. We need to be asking, who is carrying out those raids? How were they able to carry out those raids? And the the easiest answer, and one which is often backed up by the detail of the accounts, is that uh, they came across the sea in big ships, heavily armed, and took what they wanted. But then you have to ask, how is it possible for primitive barbarians to do this and then defeat what is projecting itself as the pinnacle of civilization and technology and so on and so forth, and and destroy them completely. And I think the answer is they were able to do that not because they were primitive and not because they were barbaric in the popular sense, they may have done horrible things, but they were wild, unkempt. These were highly sophisticated people. They had a very tightly developed society. They had their laws, they had their social hierarchies, They were so tightly embedded in their environment that the people at the top of the social pyramids were able to control vast resources. They had craftsmen of a world-leading nature. When the Vikings built their longships, they weren't simply throwing a tub in the water and paddling across the sea with a frying pan. These were the equivalent, I suppose, of the stealth bombers of the modern world. So, Not trivial things, it's very difficult to evaluate costs and investments, but if a stealth bomber costs, tens of billions of dollars, that's an unimaginable sum for any of us. In the same way, producing a Viking longship for any individual farm labourers is also an unimaginable sum. So sophisticated people, they would need to have the motive, they would need to have skills, they would need to have the tools and equipment and the training to make these endeavours worthwhile. So even before a Viking raid took place, the people who were controlling it from home, they were already, in their own terms, phenomenally wealthy. They were already, in their own terms, very powerful people. Maybe there were things that they wanted, perhaps stealing was the main part of it, for reasons of reciprocal gift exchange, for building bonds amongst their followers, and so forth. But there may also be other reasons. And one of those which is overlooked is the political dimension, and, uh, well, this is, this is something that we also hear all the time about the Vikings. They attacked defenceless monasteries. They did barbaric things. They did things that Christians would not do. But well, we have covered this in the course you took when you we were in Edinburgh. If we look at the sources from the early Middle Ages in the British Isles, particularly from Ireland, we can soon see that long before any Vikings arrived on the scene, the peoples of Britain were doing exactly the same thing to their Christian neighbours themselves. The, the Irish Annals, they tell us, for example, that uh, atrocities were committed on a daily basis. Enemies, whether they were in the same polity or in different ones, would go to war regularly against their neighbours. They might, they might blind their rivals if they captured them. They might murder them by drowning them, specifically. They might burn them. They might hang them. They... They might engage in non specific slaying or harrying or general slaughter. And, you know, not even churches were spared. So, very often there are accounts of, of church burnings and attacks which go all the way to the, the church door in every medieval island. So, the Vikings weren't bringing anything particularly new into the mix. And if they were doing something different, perhaps they were just doing it better. Perhaps they were doing it better. And... One of the reasons they are likely to engage in this kind of behaviour, and there are several reasons, so not just in terms of gathering tribute and gathering wealth and gathering prestige items to exchange and to trade. One of those is engaging in the political economy, because in the early Middle Ages, the church was at the very centre of any given society, in Christendom that is. The church was the spiritual anchor of the local secular rulers. It was the symbol, not just of their God's authority, but of the authority of their secular patrons. So by attacking churches, you are doing two things. You are challenging the power of the Christian's God, which is one thing, but you are also openly challenging the authority of the secular rulers. So that's a really important political gambit. And that's something that's easy to overlook. And if you think about it in this way, it moves things quite a bit away from the very simplistic hit-and-run raid by some alcoholized tramps who've found themselves a canoe. This has got to be very well planned, very well resourced. There have to be reasons behind it, sometimes straightforward, sometimes less than straightforward, which require careful thought to unpack.
3: And I don't think that your standard Hollywood film is going to want to spend the time explaining all the the real intrigue behind all these decisions, I think for entertainment purposes, it's a lot easier to just sort of say, and now let's just have these brutes of a ship, go attack some churches, kill some people. And <laughs> <Yes>. that's entertainment. <laughs>
4: well, exactly. And there is nothing wrong, that. it is entertaining. It's fun, isn't it? It's exciting. But maybe the reality was slightly more nuanced and it involving people and people haven't changed that much. We have to think about the motives. We've got to look underneath the spin and the hype, just like when we're reading modern newspapers get to the
3: bottom of what was going on. So, okay, I don't want to spend too long on this question because we could spend a whole day talking about just this. So, you know, it, it doesn't have to be like the most comprehensive answer ever because there's no right answer. But in terms of Viking culture, not only do we like to portray that on film and in popular culture just generally as something cool to study, a lot of white supremacist movements, both here and abroad, seem to really have this fascination with appropriating specifically viking culture and just like the this is a huge topic so maybe just your initial thoughts on why is it that they like to take viking symbols especially and i mean i know there's some appropriation of greco-roman things we see it all the time but why is it this fascination with either the valknut symbol or the ash tree or or even the the raven of odin it's it's always it's always those three or thor's hammer or something yeah, well that is it's a
4: disturbing issue, quite frankly. It's a difficult one to get to the bottom of, really. And you're quite right, we could spend a long time trying to grow around to this. I suppose the, the easiest answer if I get a view of is that it must be related in some sense to the ideologies of the German Nazis in the early part of the twentieth century, and they really set down the benchmark for the misappropriation of ancient Germanic stroke Nordic heritage in that way. If you look at the, the symbolism that was developed by the Nazis, they used the the letters, for example, they often used images of what they felt idealized Nordic warriors would look at, and they, they, they played on the, the what they felt to be superior aspects of physiology and appearance. And those are things which have stuck with the far right, I think, in the period since. Maybe they evolved in slightly different ways, but they go back essentially to them. But I've got to say, the Nazis did bad things with these. They weren't the first people to appropriate aspects of the ancient past for political purposes. If we go back, especially to the, say, the early 19th century, but also before that, something you can see happening all over Europe, the historical period, but the cultural period that we enter then is sometimes known as the National Romantic Period. And this is at the beginning of the, the concept of the, the nation state in its more recent form, and the idea that every, every nation should be a self contained unit with its own language and its own um, establishment and its own heritage, its own culture. In reality, in lots of nation states, the picture is confused by a patchwork of heritage and culture and language. Take Scotland, for example, as part of the UK, it doesn't really fit into this one size fits all model. But in Scandinavia, of course, in the early 19th century, The political layout was slightly different. Norway, after a long period of political eclipse, was about to re-enter the world as an independent country. didn't happen until the early 20th century, but the the pivot for this really was the, the Napoleonic Wars. And as a result of how they chose to participate in those wars, both Denmark and Sweden suffered severe political setbacks. Denmark, was forced to make a decision before the outcome of the wars was obvious and they decided to go with who appeared to be the top player at the time who was napoleon and sadly for them being a nation surrounded by water they were open to easy attack by the british and so at least one fleet was sailed across to the capital city and uh, blew seven shades of shine out of them and afterwards as a, an extra punishment because political disputes were not settled an enlightened and placated way in those days. In order to really hammer home who the victors were and how silly the Danish establishment had been, the Danish realm, which then included Norway, was dissected. And Norway was taken away like a possession from Denmark and it was given to Sweden. So the Danes were deflated. At the same time, the Swedish realm, which had included what is now Finland, was also dissected. They had been involved in military action and friction with Russia. And after um, a disastrous war in the early part of the 19th century, the Russians were victorious, which they were always going to be ultimately, being much, much bigger than Sweden went, and Sweden had been taken off it. So you have two countries, once great powers in a very real sense, in the European theatre, but also with aspirations overseas, now forced to look not to their position in the modern world for some kind of national feeling of well-being, but to look back to the accomplishments of their ancestors. And it's during this period that the the modern sense of the the valiant, the brave, the noble, the victorious Vikings really starts to embed. And that movement you can see segging ultimately into uh, Nazi thinking because it was very current in Scandinavia and Norway and would have been well known in Germany to an extent through this period. Wagner, for example, in his operas, perhaps didn't play to the Viking gallery quite so much but he piqued interest in the ancient Germanic past, of which the Vikings were a part, and the symbolism, the archaeological discoveries of the time, they fed into things as trivial as the costumes and the stage designs for productions of Wagner. So all of these featured in this, this growing need to look back to the ancient past, and I suspect Although I've been going on a bit, it's for these same reasons that modern ultra right wing groups are doing the same thing. Perhaps maybe uh, we don't need to have a political discussion now, but usually when people start to get really upset about things like that, it's because things aren't going very well for them in their everyday lives. Maybe they're down on their luck. Maybe maybe they haven't got jobs. Maybe they've got no prospects. Rather than challenge the people who are really responsible for that, it's easier to find scapegoats. And if you need uh, a mask to wear while you're doing that, but you don't want to look at where you are now, maybe you want something a bit more attractive, which is something we found in the past. So that's, that's my two bits, off. Well.
3: I think that's a really good submission because, yeah, it's not an easy topic to discuss for sure. So at the end of every podcast episode, I ask every guest if they will read the poem Ozymandias by Percy Shelley. And upon reading this very evocative poem, it's my favorite of all time, just because I I love the, the messages behind it, the imagery it conjures. So. After reading it, if you could just give me your quick thoughts on what is it trying to say? What does it mean? Why is it important?
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, What the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass.
4: My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. So yes, uh, a very powerful, evocative piece. Uh, I suppose we all know this is Shelley's metaphor for the very fitting nature of political power but for me, the first thing this throws up, actually, is a personal memory. A very long time ago, 20-odd years ago, my now wife and I went to Egypt as young people. And we spent a good few weeks, more than a month, in fact, travelling about on buses and trains and experiencing the place. And going through Cairo, travelling here and there, something that was then evident when you left the main station was a huge statue, statue of Pharaoh, which... Uh, was Ramesses II, and I was struck by this thing. It was ancient, it was in very good shape, but it was surrounded by various motorway, slipways and flyovers, and we couldn't help thinking how on earth could the Egyptian people put that precious artifact there? It's gonna be destroyed completely by the pollution in a matter of years. You know, something which has been in the sand previously for thousands of years could be gone in a couple of decades. Thankfully, I've since found out that the Egyptian authorities felt the same way, and it, it was moved. I, I looked this up the other day, I was trying to find a photo of it, but 2006 it was moved to the, the Grand Egyptian Museum in Giza. So that's, that's my personal experience of Ozymandias, this huge imposing statue. And I think, looking at my own work, there's various different ways that you could interpret this beyond politics. But, uh, yes, the remnants of this thing that once was stood there in pieces in need of interpretation in a way mirrors the materials that I worked with myself. So we have the, the names of places that I talked about earlier. You could imagine that those are the, the legs, the feet and they be very clear what they are as legs and feet but you left them wondering what did the torso look like? What did the arms look like? what the heck what was the hole? And that works really as a metaphor. But what I'm doing, I've got some of the body parts lying about, but not all of them, and I need to try to recreate a convincing hole as objectively as possible from the parts that I have available. But it also, it's a very, a very moving hole, it's very profound. It reduces us all, I suppose, in the long term to the level of dust. The sand which stretches far away from the base of it is, is what we all are ultimately, is just, just dust, we blow away. And as an academic who is looking at issues of the ancient past, one of my jobs, I like to think, is to capture some of that sand, stop it blowing away, so that we can at least document it and we can assess it and try to see it for what it once was.
3: I love that analysis because that's exactly how I interpret most of the poem as well, especially the comments on political power. And so the very last question I ask every guest, because I love the variability and the, the differences in answers I get, is thinking about the poem then as that statement, is there anything in modern culture today that we would consider sort of a modern Ozymandias, something that we think that we thought was so great that if we look at it in 200, 2000 years, is it really going to be the greatest thing?
4: Well, do you want a diplomatic answer or do you want a topic answer?
3: <laughs> Either it's up to you. I've gotten some really great ones all the way around.
4: Yeah, it depends on how you define great. Do you mean that in a positive sense or simply something which is very big and domineering?
3: Honestly, I'm going to leave that up to you.
4: Well, there's lots of political developments in the recent past, which I hope will go the way of Ozymandias sooner rather than later. And I won't be doing anything to capture grains of sand that uh, are eroded away from that. Otherwise, well, something else that I wonder about, maybe worry about a little bit, is our culture in general and uh, how we negotiate that, how we access it, how it will be preserved for the future. And as a person who grew up on the edge of the modern world, I like to think that I have the benefit of two different perspectives on this. As I mentioned earlier, when I was young there was no internet, there was no real information technology that I had access to anyway books, where it was at, printed material. And uh, we all have a lot of demands on our time these days. And it can be difficult to find the time to sit down and engage in a meaningful way with the printed word But it is an important thing to do. And if you, you can do that, it's very rewarding. You can learn things about stuff, but you can also learn things about yourself. If you do that, things about the world around the world, which is very useful. These days, increasing with young people, I wonder what the incentive... do that kind of thing is now i don't see this in a judgy kind of way i'm not saying i would have behaved any differently had i been born later because i probably doing exactly the same thing but if you negotiate the world through the prism of a swipe device and if your main interaction the way in which you consume culture is largely limited to short youtube videos tweets instagram posts yes you're going to process lots of information and and we'll learn lots of things. But is that move away from extended engagement with bigger ideas and longer pieces, is that still going to happen in the same way in this new world of always-on, speedy response, information overload? I don't know, I think we're in a time of flux. Yeah, maybe maybe the, the culture of the the hard stare and the long think is something which might crumble. I hope it doesn't, but you know, the jury's out now. On that one. It remains to be seen.
3: That's a fantastic answer. I love that answer. I hope, well, we won't be around in 200 years, but I hope someone looks back at this and says, ah, he was right. Maybe not. Uh, (laughs) Okay. Well, I think, you know, if you find, if you find the elixir that grants eternal life, please share it with me. I'd, I'd like to share in that. So anyway, I've succeeded in finishing this up before you have to go to tea. Thank you for joining me today for some wonderfully enlightening conversation. And it's been wonderful.
4: It's been a pleasure, and thank you very much for inviting me, Alexa.
3: Today's episode has proudly been sponsored by SASA, the Save Ancient Studies Alliance.
4: Are you interested in ancient civilizations? Want to learn more about the origins of Assassin's Creed obsessed with ancient Norse, Mesoamerican, or Chinese mythology? Then join SASA, Save Ancient Studies Alliance, to remind the world the importance of ancient studies through fun events like RKO gaming and book clubs. SASA is always looking for volunteers. Don't be shy. Reach out and tell us why you love ancient studies. Visit
2: www.saveancientstudies.org to learn more. Trireme Transit is now departing ancient office hours. Next stop is Present Ponderings. The hand that mocked them, and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Around the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad, and I want
1: to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly, but sometimes when you drink that much water